confess that you've given us the ability in our fingers to open this book, we pray that you would open up our minds and hearts. Father, in a profound way, enable us to listen, to receive from you the grace that is here, even as we understand this truth that's before us. So be with us, please, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50, I want to read beginning with verse 7. Psalm number 50. Psalm number 50, beginning with verse 7. Hear the word of God. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked God says, What rights have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me to the one To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Before I get to this, I want to provide a bit of an explanation as to why we're in Psalm 50 Uh, today. I finished uh, 1 Peter a couple of weeks ago. After quite some time there, many of you were interested to ask what I would do next. When you asked me, I didn't know up until last week sometime when I finally decided uh, as I've shared before, the way that I determine what I'm going to do next uh, after I finish something, we don't, we don't get those opportunities all that often. Uh, but uh, but what I, the way that I do that is that I pray, interestingly enough, that God would lead me. And he does that often through discussions with some of you or the elders of our church or my family. But very often, just by what grips me as I'm reading the scripture and praying and thinking about you. And so I normally just go with that. So what I've determined to do beginning next Sunday uh, is to take up the first seven chapters of Leviticus. You may wonder, what has struck him Um, to do that? But that's what we'll do. We'll take up the first uh, seven chapters of Leviticus. And there we'll find five sacrifices that God gave to ancient Israel to make. Five different uh, sacrifices. Uh, Burnt offering, a grain or a Gift offering, it's called. A peace fellowship offering, a sin offering, guilt offering. And uh, what I want to do with that, those offerings, is 
is then to show how it is that Jesus has fulfilled each of those. And I think it will be helpful to us to see that. If you remember, if we could just jump into what we call uh, the history of redemption, that is, this, this history that God gives to us, is how it is that he redeems his people. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1, we have, the, we have the creation, of course. Then in Genesis chapter 3, we have the sin of Adam and Eve. And then the great promise that God's going to send one who's going to crush the head of the serpents. And then, uh, sooner or later, by Genesis chapter 12, we come across this man named Abraham, who God changes his name to Abraham, and makes these wonderful promises, one of which is that through him, or through his descendants, all the nations, families of the earth, will be blessed. And you remember then, as his family's natural descendants develop, then they eventually find themselves in Egypt, where they become enslaved. And in that enslavement, you remember, God sends Moses... And Moses then, by the power of God, delivers the people out of Egypt and then brings them to a place and gives them his law. And then he gives to them instructions about how it is that God desires them to worship him. And that's a very important order. The fact that they were delivered, the law was given, and then they were told, given instructions, how it is that they were to worship God. Because you see, first God redeems, first God delivers, and then he gives the law to say, this is how you're to live in my presence. This is how you're to live as my people. Because I'm to be your God, you're to be my people. So here's my law, here's how it is that you're to live. But in the midst of that, of course, because we sin against God, he provides then this way of worshiping him so that our sins can be forgiven and we can stay in his presence. Do you remember in the midst of all that, God gave instructions to build this movable tent at that point in time called the tabernacle. And the the outer part of that tabernacle or tent was uh, a rectangle 75 feet by 150. Unless, of course, you're in the cubits and it was 50 by 100. But in terms of feet, it was 75 by 100. Now, this room is about 90 by 60. Right? So you get a sense, a little bit wider this way, quite a bit longer this way. Big rectangle with, with poles and, 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 and claws around. And then in one part of that rectangle was a smaller rectangle. And that smaller rectangle was 15 by about 45 feet and it had two compartments or two rooms in it, if you will. One smaller, one larger. The larger one uh, was called the holy place. The smaller one, which was only about 15 by 15 square, was called the most holy place. And in the most holy place, it was said to be the very dwelling place of God. And that's where you might remember on the one day in the year, the Day of Atonement, that the high priest and the high priest only would go with the blood of the slain animal and sprinkle on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people. And so God says, if you're going to live in my presence, here's my law, here's how I want you to live. But even when you sin against me, if your heart is right and you're repentant of your sin and you come to me and make sacrifice, then I will forgive your sins. I'll be merciful to you. And you can continue to live in my presence. And so he gives to them, in general, these five different kinds of sacrifices. Now, these five kinds of sacrifices, I love doing this to you because you're looking at me like, oh, this is information. Yes? This is our, this is our heritage. We need to know this, you see. Uh, and we'll do this again. You know me. I'll say this again over the next month and a half. But um, these five sacrifices had three main purposes, three main functions in the life of this people in the context of their worship. 
First, for atonement. Second, to, as an offering of a gift, if you will, to the one who is worthy of all gifts. And then finally, to mark out the fact that we can have peace, that is fellowship with God. Those three primary purposes, primary functions of these sacrifice, like sacrifices. The most important, of course, is this whole notion of atonement, the bringing of atonement. Because our sin, you remember, separates us from God. Because God is holy. And our sin is such, as with Adam and Eve in the garden, when they decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they, in essence, in their own minds, were setting themselves up to be God. They were saying, no, we will rule over our lives. We will be the ones to determine what is good and what is evil. That's the function of God. But they said, no, we'll do that. God has said not to eat, but we're going to say it's good to eat. And so they set themselves up as God. And you see, that's the essence of sin in the context of our lives. We would rather define our own lives rather than to listen to God and follow him, as he tells us who we're to be. We'd rather direct our own lives rather than to listen to God as he directs our lives. And we find great delight in our independence, in our freedom, in our autonomy from him, when in fact we should find great delight in being dependent upon him and seeing him and observing him and experiencing his great provision. And see, that's the nature of sin. And when that occurs, then of course, we fall under the wrath of God. Because God is holy. And he is the one who is to be supremely loved, supremely followed, supremely depended upon. And if you sin against me, it's not that big a deal. There were atonement for sinning against me. It would be, depending on the nature of the sin, it would go anywhere from the smaller to the larger Hershey bar. And it'd be fine. It's not that big a deal. But we're talking about God here. And so the wages of sin, the scripture says, is death. is separation from him, physically, spiritually. Because he's holy, perfectly holy. And he deserves our undivided allegiance. So there has to be a way, if we're going to live in his presence, that we can be reconciled, that we can be made at one with him. Thus, atonement. God says, you should die, but I'll take another in your place. Thus, the sacrifices, especially the animal sacrifices, especially the blood sacrifices, to bring this atonement, atonement, so that we can live in the very presence of God. And the blessing, you see, of living in the very presence of God is to live under his protection, live in his provision, and to live precisely as human beings were made to live, and that is in God. And so you see this, this picture that we see there in this tabernacle is the very presence of God, of God among his people. And he says, come to me. And when you come, because of the nature of your sin, bring this sacrifice. When you come, because of my worthiness, bring this gift. When you come, bring this sacrifice that will announce to you that there's peace between us. That we have fellowship together and you have fellowship with each other. And so, over the next number of weeks, I want to take us through these, through these sacrifices and also for us to celebrate communion together. And so you may say, but, but why? I mean, what brings you to this? Well, first, and this is always my first reason for picking something to use as our next series. You know the answer to this. I chose it because it's in the Bible. Should I help you? Secondly, that we're coming upon Lent. No. We don't generally spend a great deal of time as sort of 
gymnasium worshiping in Presbyterians. Uh, this whole Christian year notion. But it's a, it can be a very helpful thing because if we look at, at how the sort of Christian year historically is laid out, it helps to take us through the life of Christ and then ask the question, how then are we supposed to live? So we begin an Advent as we start thinking about the coming of Jesus and who he is and the promises made and all of that. Christmas time, he's come, this wonderful day of Epiphany and time of Epiphany that we ask the question, all right, uh, who is this one who has come? What's, what's he look like and how is he manifested to us? And we see him as the very Son of God who's come to save sinners. And then we move after that into this period of Lent. And this time of Lent is that time in the Christian year when we think about the passion of Christ, we think about the sacrifice of Christ, we think about the crucifixion of Christ, we think about the humility of Jesus, wherein he who was uh, uh, God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, as Paul says in Philippians 2, but indeed emptied himself, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being obedient even to death, even death on a cross, which was the most horrible way to die, the most embarrassing way to die. The most scandalous way to die. So we think about the humility of Jesus. And in the context of that, then, of course, we think, what drove him there? And we understand in the context of our own sin and our own humility before him and our own repentance and our own then dying to our sin in the course of our lives. So that's this whole time of Lent. And so I think it's helpful for us in understanding the sacrifice, the passion of Jesus and his humility, and therefore ours as well to think about these Old Testament sacrifices. It was St. Augustine who said, the New Testament is in the Old concealed. The Old Testament is in the New revealed. What he meant by that was there's continuity between the Old and New Testament. I have friends who refer to themselves as New Testament Christians, and I'm thinking, you're only half. I understand what they mean, but the point is we're whole Bible Christians. Because you can't understand the new unless you understand the old. Because you see, the New Testament is in the Old Testament in shadow form. When we look at these sacrifices, what they're doing is pointing us to Jesus. There's Jesus in the midst of these sacrifices. There's Jesus in the midst of this tabernacle. There's Jesus in the midst of the Holy of Holies living among his people, you see. So, the new is in the old, but it's conceived. The Old Testament, then, by the time you get there... Is in the new revealed. Thus, when John the Baptist comes on the scene and says of Jesus, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you go, yeah, I get it now. And so what I want us to do is take a look at the new that's concealed in the old and so that we can see it then in the light of the new and appreciate it more deeply. So that's where we're headed. But I want, before we get there, to lay a foundation that I think if we miss, we may miss the very point of all of that. Thus, I come to Psalm number 50. Notice with me verse 7. The psalmist begins, Hear, O my people, and I will speak against... uh, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, I testify against you. I am God, your God. Verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Now, that's a rather astounding statement coming from God, the very God who commanded these sacrifices to be made. 
And in essence, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, rebuking you because you're making sacrifices, because you are making sacrifices. And that's exactly what I commanded you to do. I mean, that's good. You're, you're, your sacrifices are continually before me. You're doing it just like I told you to. You're bringing them just in the right time and just the right way. Mechanically, everything's fine. But then he goes on to say, but I won't accept them. And you say, but why not? These sacrifices will be right here. You're the ones who commanded these gods. Why won't you accept these from us? And the answer, of course, is because it's not simply about the mechanics of making and bringing the sacrifice. It's about the heart of one who comes. It's about the heart of the worshiper. And it's always been like that. The Old Testament isn't some mechanized system of religion wherein you do this and you do that and everything works out well. It's always been and always is about the heart of the worshiper. And there's two issues here, two problems here that we must be aware of because we can fall into them just in the same way. The one is this sort of mechanized formalism that can happen in the life of the people of God. And the second is hypocrisy. That is saying all the right things with your lips, but not having a heart that's consistent with your profession at all. And so notice how the psalmist puts it. Verse 9, I will not, says God, I will not accept the bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and, I know, and, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? God's saying, listen, do you think I need this? You think I'm hungry? So I'm saying, could you bring me a really, really good marbled piece of beef? Do you really think I'm hungry? And if I were hungry, do you really think I'd need you to bring it to me out of your flocks, out of your herds? Because I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything out there is mine. Why would I ask you for it? If I needed it, why wouldn't I just go get it myself? I don't need your permission. I don't need you to bring it. I could do it all on my own. So why is it that you're bringing these things? You think it's because I need it in some way. And if you just bring it, drop it at the, at the altar and burn it a bit, then everything will be fine. So no, no, no. Because if you want to bring it, bring it like this. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He says, oh yes, bring the offerings. This is what I've told you to do. But make sure when you bring them, you're bringing them thankfully. Because if you're bringing them thankfully, it means you really understand what's going on here. Because what's going on here is the very fact that you realize that you don't deserve to live in my presence. That you don't deserve me to be your God. That you don't deserve me to protect and provide for you and to bless you as I have. So you should be bringing these offerings filled with gratefulness, thinking, wow, how did I get into this? How does this take place in the context of my life? Why am I so blessed to be able to come before God and live in his presence? Why am I so blessed to be able to call upon him and he answers me? Why am I so blessed? You see, we only know that when we realize that we really don't deserve it. Thanksgiving time every year, I rehearse with myself and usually my family and anybody else will listen. The basis for thankfulness. See, oftentimes we're thankful when we compare what we have with what we need. And when we compare what we have with what we need, 
and we have all that we need or thereabouts, we can be grateful. Sometimes we compare what we have with what we want. And many of us have a lot of our wants satisfied. And that makes us very grateful. But you see, real thankfulness comes when we compare what we have with what we deserve. And when we find that what we have is the opposite, the blessing, it's the opposite of what we deserve, that's real thankfulness. And so God is saying to these people, understand the grace I've given to you. Understand the mercy I've given to you. And therefore, if you're just bringing these, 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 these sacrifices in a perfunctory way, and you're not really engaged with me, you'll just sort of drop them at the altar and go on your way and think, well, I did my thing with God and everything's going to be just fine. And he says, no, 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 no. It's not going to be just fine because I'm not going to accept your offering. Because you need to bring it with genuine thanksgiving, meaning that you really understand what's happening here, that you really understand who you are, you really understand who I am, and you really understand the blessing that I'm giving to you that enables you to be in my presence and I'm your God. And then he goes on, verse 16. He says, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips. He's saying, you know, you're a group of people, you're walking around and you're saying, we belong to God. We're God's people. And God is saying, what right do you have to say that? And I think I'd say, well, because you've said we can say it. You said that you're going to be our God and we're going to be your people. But you get the impression that God's not too thrilled with this arrangement at the moment. Because he says, what gives you the right to say that? Verse 17, he says, for you hate discipline. In other words, God is saying, if, if you really want to be my people, then you should look forward to my discipling you, my training you, my leading you, my disciplining you, my correcting you, so that you can live to please me. And if you really want to be mine, that's what it means to be mine, to follow after me. If you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you, which is sort of a formal way of saying, you're not listening to me. My words hit you and you just put them aside. But if you really were mine, you wouldn't put them aside. You would take them seriously. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you're pleased with him. He says, if you really belong to me, if you saw a thief, that wouldn't please you because you would know it would displease me. And you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. No, 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 you see, if you really belong to me, that wouldn't characterize you. That isn't what would delight you to, to speak evil. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Again, no. If you're really mine, this wouldn't be true of you. Verse 20, you, or 21. These things you've done and I've been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. That is, you thought everything was fine. But now I rebuke you and lay, hold, and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart. And there be none to deliver. And you say, okay, then how are we really to offer these sacrifices? Verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. He says, listen, if you're going to follow after me, if I'm going to be yours, and you're going to be mine, then you must order your way my way. They say, but we all sin. And the answer, of course, is yes, of course, we all sin. And God says, I've made a provision for that. 
when you bring your offering, it's atoning sacrifice for your sin. When you bring it, if you bring it with thanksgiving, meaning I understand the grace that's being given here. I understand my sin. I understand that was wrong. And so I'm coming to you, God, to ask for forgiveness of my sin. I will accept it, God says. But when you come and you say, it really doesn't matter. My sin. I just have to go through with this sacrifice in order to keep God happy. Sorry. This, of course, isn't the first time the Israelites, or could I say us, had difficulty in this regard with hypocrisy or formalism. You might remember all the way back in 1 Samuel in chapter 15, when Saul was king, his first instruction from God was to destroy the Amalekites. Now you may say, oh, that's a little harsh. Uh, not if you knew the Amalekites. Not if you knew what they had done. And so Saul was to go and destroy the Amalekites. But he didn't. He preserved the king. He left the king of the Amalekites live. And rather than destroying all of their cattle and oxen and lamb and goats, he took the very best. The people took the very best from their flocks and their herds. And they did it with this idea of saying, well, we'll get all of this really, really great stuff and we'll make a sacrifice to God, which in their mind meant we'll have a party. Because once we make the sacrifice to God, since God doesn't eat much, then we'll have all of this left and so we'll be able to celebrate that whole notion. And so Samuel the prophet comes to Saul and he says, Saul, didn't God say destroy it all? And Saul said, well, we kept the best so we can make a sacrifice to God. And he was... Samuel's response in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Saying God takes these things very seriously. He wants you to obey Him. And the only reason to bring Him a sacrifice in this regard is if you acknowledge your sin. And the only way to acknowledge your sin here is to destroy all of this, go to your own flocks and herds, and bring a sacrifice of your own and say, God, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. But God desires obedience more than sacrifice. In Psalm chapter 40, in verse 6, the psalmist David puts it like this. He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but... You've given me an open ear, meaning you've dug out my deafness. I'm able to really hear you now. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is written within my heart. He said, This is what really pleases God. When, when our laws are written in his heart, when we resonate with his law and desire to do it, that, that's really what he's after. And oh, yes, when we sin, we bring sacrifice. But when we do... It's because we're sorry for our sins. And we understand the grace that's there from God. Psalm 51. A great psalm of repentance from David after he acknowledged his sin with Bathsheba and all the ramifications of that. In Psalm 51, verse 16, David writes, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
David finally got it. He realized it isn't this mechanical process of making sacrifice, but it's the condition of the heart. And this is what you want when I bring sacrifice. It's a repentant heart, a contrite heart, a heart that says, I, I really get it, God, and I'm really sorry. Isaiah, in chapter 1, same issue arises. Verse 11, God says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. So again, he's saying, I'm tired of your sacrifices. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. And here's the reason why. Next line. God says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. He says, here's the problem. We've called a solemn assembly. We've called the sacred assembly this time when you're to gather before me and worship me. And you come and you make sacrifices, but you don't do anything about the iniquity that's in your own heart. Because you're going to, the moment you're going to leave here, you're going to go out and blaspheme. And you know that, and, and it just doesn't bother you. You're going to go out and be immoral, and it just doesn't bother you. You're going to come to the convocation, and here you are. You're going through all of the motions. Everything's fine. You're making all the right sacrifices. You're saying all the right things. But the truth of the matter, as the psalmist would write in a later part, you cherish iniquity in your own heart. You're unrepentant as you come before me. And God says, you know, I'm God. I know what's going on. I can't be mocked. Why are you saying these things? And yet they're not really true. And if that's the case, don't bring your sacrifices. Only bring them when you can come in thanksgiving. Only bring them when you can come repentant. Only bring them when you really are engaged with me. And it's sincere and true. And so he goes on in verse 15. He says, I won't even hear your prayers. He says, when you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. And it's full of iniquity, full of sin. So he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. And you say, well, I thought God is the only one who can cleanse us. And that's true. And he's saying, here, for you to do is to repent, to turn your back on these sins and to turn them aside. And so he says, cease to do evil. Don't do that anymore. Learn to do good. Reframe your mind around the things of God which are good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fathers, fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Then verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And you know, when I read that, I think, oh, God wants to have a dialogue with us. He says, let's just sit down around the table and just talk about things. So you read on and realize how it is that God reasons. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they become they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's reasoning goes like this. You are hopeless and helpless in your sin. But if you come to me, I will cleanse you. And that's your only hope. And to God, that makes perfect sense. That's perfect reason. He says, if you don't come to me, or if you come to me, you're not engaged with me. You're not thankful. You're not really thinking about who I am and who you are. I'm not 
repentant of your own sin. And this is just a formal thing for you. Don't come. Hosea, in chapter 5, and verse 13. Remember this situation. Hosea, the prophet, had been commanded by God to unite with this woman named Gomer, who was a prostitute. And he uses that as an image of the unfaithfulness of Israel. Verse 13 in chapter 5, when Ephraim saw his sickness, that is Israel, and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. In other words, when difficulties arose, rather than going to God, they went to the king of Assyria for help. God didn't like that. And so God stood in judgment against them. Chapter 6, verse 1. They say to each other, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, that he may bind us up. After two days he'll revive us, and the third day he'll raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. In other words, they said, God's been faithful to us all the time. He says, return to him and he'll receive us. So let's return to him. But God, knowing their hearts, verse 4, says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. In other words, he says, I know you. I know you've said this before. You get the feeling that Hosea had heard this from Gomer. On one of her more repentant moods, she would come home and say, Oh, I'm really sorry. I, I won't go be unfaithful again. And then she would. And God's saying, I know you. Your, your love is like the morning dew. It doesn't last long. You say we're back, but then within a day and a half, you're gone. So verse 6, God says, This is what I desire. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He says, you know, when you come to me, what I want is your heart. What I want is your steadfast love. Your offerings are great if they're brought in the context of steadfast love. Of thanksgiving. Of repentance. Of faith. Of getting it. Of understanding. Of saying, yes, God, I'm with you. I'm engaged with you. I know what I deserve. I know what you're giving me. And I come with thanksgiving to, to live in your, your presence. You're my God. I'm coming to cast my sin upon you so that I might walk in a way that pleases you. Now, the reason I mention all of this as we prepare to think of these sacrifices and even as we prepare to come to the table this morning is because you and I are not above this kind of mechanized formalism in our faith, nor above hypocrisy. It's very easy for us to, 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 to sort of go through the motions with God. It's so amazing to me. It's so easy to go through the, the motions with God. We, we think everything is, is okay so long as we show up at church regularly or we, we gave, so we think everything will be just fine. Or we've been baptized. Or we took communion, for goodness sakes. I mean, isn't that enough? I mean, we, we ate Jesus. And so, here, I mean, it should not suffice in the context of, of our lives. God says, oh, that's good. We come with thanksgiving. 
If you come understanding. If you come with your heart right before me. You say, well, I can't come sinless because I'm a sinner. And God says, I know that. You ask that question, you're still not getting it. Because you see, when you come to me, you come to have your sins forgiven. So that you can leave and walk in newness of life. You say, but I'll sin again. God says, I am. Come to me, repentant, understanding what you deserve and what you get. Come with thanksgiving, come with faith, because I'll receive you. But if you don't, I won't. This communion, this coming before God, can be a very dangerous thing. The Apostle Paul writes this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You think, how can such a thing as this be that dangerous? Because we mustn't forget that when we come to this table, we enter the very presence of God. Remember, the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me and in the same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he as well gave this to his disciples. And he said, This cup is the new covenant in thy blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Now we realize that as we think upon Jesus, we think upon his life, death, resurrection, we think about what it is that he did. And we understand that when we come to this table, we come into the very presence of Jesus. Now, this bread and juice remain bread and juice. This doesn't change. Still bread. Still juice. It isn't Jesus. Because when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, he was speaking figuratively, saying that spiritually I'm present here with you. Though this remains the same. But he did say, if we're to take this bread, take this juice, set it apart in this way, so as to think upon him, remember him. And thus when we do, we're in his very presence in that special, mysterious kind of way. You say, aren't we always in the presence of Jesus? And the answer is yes. And we're in the presence of Jesus as we come to the table. And we mustn't forget that. We mustn't come in some mere formalism. Just to think, well, I've got to do this every so often. Keeps my soul right with God. Not unless you come with thanksgiving. Understanding who you are and understanding who He is and understanding what you deserve and understanding what He does and understanding what He gives and understanding what you've received as a believer in Jesus. Then you eat it. And then by faith you say, you, you grow. We have to be careful that we don't mock God in the midst of this. The Lord Jesus present at this table. It isn't as though you can come here knowing this afternoon you're going to 
and you get on the internet and you're going to copy off a term paper that was written by somebody else and turn it into that. Have you really come to the table and take a piece of bread and dip it in a cup, just a little snack, on your way, knowingly, to fraud? Can you really come to the table, eat with Jesus, take a little bread, a little juice, and have sex this afternoon with somebody who isn't your husband or wife? Say, no, no, no. Can you come knowing? Repent of your sin. Can you come knowing that your language isn't going to change? You're going to be a blasphemer this afternoon, just like you were yesterday, but you're going to come and get a little snack this morning so that everything will be just fine in the course of your life. No, no, you don't understand. In your mind, you're mine. And I understand that you sin, and I understand you may fall into the same kind of sin traps and patterns that you had last week and the week before and so forth and so on. But you see, when you do that, your heart should break. And you should come to me repentant, asking for forgiveness so that you receive it then with thanksgiving. And then you receive it with God. By faith in me. And your faith is in me. I'm not trying to be hellfire and brimstone here. I'm just trying to make sense of this. How else can we really come to really Jesus? Not some Jesus imposter. Not some Jesus who doesn't know us. Not some Jesus who, who really just looks askance. But the real soul-searching Jesus. The lover of our soul. Let's pray. Father, pray for me and for us. We never take lightly or just some sort of formal, mechanical way what you've done for us. We think that your death on the cross just reduces itself to some little ritualistic act that we do from time to time. Whether it's coming to church every Sunday, popping money in the box, or coming to communion. Father, we engage with you and know that you're real. We know what you've done is real. I pray you allow the reality of it to not simply touch our lips and our throats, but our very souls. And we live in thanksgiving for what you've done. Father, I pray that we don't flippantly come to this table this morning but rather you'd bring before us just our very lives in this moment so that we may confess our sins and repent and be honest. That you'd bring before us those things which are inconsistent with following you. Not so we can feel beaten over the head, but so that we can lay them before you. We can honestly acknowledge the sin of them and our need to turn from them. And we cast them before you and ask your forgiveness and pray that you would give us resolve and help and strength and newness of life to turn from them even today. We wouldn't come to this table knowing that this afternoon we're going to continue in the same sin with which we came but that you will help us. Father, set aside this bread and this juice even now to startle us, to invite us, and to bless us.
And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it is the table of the Lord Jesus. And he is the one who invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And so when he invites you to come, he invites you to come in that kind of humility to say, I'm hopeless and I'm helpless apart from him. And then he invites all those who depend and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. Thus he calls you to come repentantly. That is turning away from whatever it is that you once trusted in. And now to trust in him, trust in Christ alone. And he calls you to come, therefore, with great thanksgiving, realizing what it is that you deserve and what it is that he's given. And he calls you to come even in a sense of covenant renewal. For he calls all those who desire to leave this place living as becomes a follower of Christ. Unless as you come, it's to say, God, help me. Help me to live in a way that's pleasing to you. So I invite you to come, these two sections, if you come down the aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And as you do, I pray that you have gratefulness on your lips. Please come.